stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, well, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you. 403-974-TALK is our number, 974-8255. And we'll get back to your phone calls and your texts. We'll also hear from uh, Dennis McConaughey, formerly with TransCanada, author of the book Dysfunction, Canada After Keystone XL. Get his thoughts on the company's decision today. Now, again, uh, Energy East was before the uh, NEB. It was uh, going through the process of being reviewed. At the end of that process, the NEB would make a recommendation. If it was a recommendation to approve, it would go to the federal cabinet. That's how it works. Obviously, the rules changed with regard to the NEB process, and I think that is a factor in what happened today. So let's put that on the table. It was an odd criticism from Jason Kenney to suggest that this is somehow Rachel Notley's fault. And I guess if you're going to go down that path of saying Rachel Notley's to blame for Energy East not going ahead, well, then by extension, don't you have to give her credit for Trans Mountain going ahead? So I, that, that seems odd to me. This is federal jurisdiction. It was a federal decision. Uh, I really don't see how it would have been any different sitting here today if Jason Kenney had been premier. Uh, I'm sorry, I just, I don't see it. It's a disappointing decision to be sure, but to suggest that the Alberta government bears some responsibility for what happened is uh, peculiar. I, I think to say the least. Uh, and, and I'm surprised that the Kenny would want to set himself up that way, given that he may be premier in a couple of years. Is he going to take ownership uh, of what happens if future federal governments block future pipeline projects or reject them or scuttle them somehow? We don't know if Justin Trudeau would have said yes to this project uh, had it ended up on his desk at some point. I know there are a lot of people who feel as though maybe this was a way of trying to kill it by changing the rules so they wouldn't have to officially at the end of all of it. Uh, maybe. I don't know. We'll see what happens with Transmount. To me, that's the big test. And all along, it's been the big test as to whether this prime minister is prepared to make these things happen. It went through the process. It was a legitimate process. And Trudeau approved it. Is he going to stand by it once construction begins? Is he going to see it through to the end? We shall see. Uh, so that, that'll be a real indication, I think, of whether he's committed to these kinds of projects. Because there will be others that will come up along the way. Hopefully, Energy East will come back at some point or something similar to it. And perhaps other pipeline projects will get proposed along the way, too. You want to look on the bright side of things if Trans Mountain does get built, if the Line 9 reversal goes ahead, and of course the uh, Keystone XL, that'll make a big difference, and that's needed capacity. And so let's not forget that we've got those projects on the table. And, and I think, and some have pointed out that, that maybe Energy East was always meant to be kind of a backup in case one of those projects did not go ahead. Right? Don't forget, I mean, it's TransCanada's Keystone XL. And Energy East. So that's how I'm going to try to look at things. I'm trying to be optimistic here because I think as a country, we can still do this. We can still get these projects built. We have in the past, folks, for all the people who like to say that uh, Harper didn't get any pipelines built, we got some pretty significant pipelines built to the U.S. Uh, during his tenure. So we can do this. And it shouldn't be difficult. So to me, Trans Mountain is going to be a big test. But obviously disappointing news today. Uh, all right, well, let's go back to the phones, and we'll get to Dennis McConaughey in a few minutes here. Let's um, say good afternoon to Mel. Mel, welcome to the program. Hey, Rob. Good discussion. 
Anyway, I just have one question. Okay, the oil that's imported from other countries, is there the upstream emissions calculated in that? On which? The oil that's imported to Canada. Do they figure out what the emissions... Oh, I see. Well, no, because... The NEB is reviewing this proposed project. So any proposed project that comes up now going forward would go through that that same kind of criteria. Including imported oil. Well, I don't know what you mean by imported. Like, I mean... By ship from Venezuela, Saudi Arabia. Okay, but a ship arriving at port, yep. the NEB wouldn't have to approve that because they're not talking about building something. But I get where you're coming That's from. That's the thing. It should be fair if they're figuring right. out the upstream emissions from Canadian oil, they should be figuring it in for imported oil. Yeah, and I don't know how we do that, but I mean, it's, yeah, it's a valid point because regardless of where the oil comes from, there's going to be upstream emissions. And if it's not coming from from Western Canada via Energy East, it's coming in via pipeline and and ship from somewhere else. Yes. Yeah. No, I agree with you on that, Mel, but uh, I'm not sure how we do that. Uh, but maybe it speaks to the point that uh, the government should have shouldn't have imposed that rule in the first place. Uh, let's see what uh, Dale has to say. Dale, good afternoon. Well, Rob, um, all I can say is this whole thing is becoming a separation issue between Western and Eastern Canada again. The fact um, of the maybe. matter is, how? Yep. Why are we keep getting screwed over? Meanwhile, we get everything from down east. It's okay. Ever since Trudeau got back in, it's like a little old man who screwed us back. I don't know how old you are, son, but um, back in the 80s where we got totally screwed out here, I have got nothing to do with the oil patch. I will tell you that. Nothing. But it was kind of sad when people started losing their houses, their jobs, and everything else out here. No doubt. It's, it's happening again. And due to the fact that the boy has got more interest in down east. Now we have Kudair with his little thing. So we just keep shipping money to these SOBs down east, or do we say enough is enough and say it's time to leave this confederation because nothing is good for us out here in Alberta. No matter what we do. How are we going to get a pipeline built to the east or the okay, west coast how do we, if we okay, separate? How do we get a railroad built, Rob? How do we get anything built? Well, how do we get that out there? We still have pipelines. Not, we, we can import oil, but we can't move our oil across Canada. We have that same pipeline. All we're going to do is rever- that original one, Line 9, was reversed. Was da, 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 you know what I'm saying? It was right. reversed. Okay, but what about Trans Mountain? Trans Mountain. Geez, I would cut it off immediately. If B.C. doesn't want our so-called dirty oil, but they sure want our dirty money and everything else, where are they going to get the oil from? Well, hang on, because the pipeline's approved, construction's set to begin. Well, the same thing is, it's been going on and on. So, what do you say to these people that we don't want it? Well, then, cut it off, or maybe I'll bring it Okay, but I mean, on Trans Mountain, so what if people in B.C. don't like it? If it gets built, that's what matters, right? Well, is it going to get built, number one? Number two, if everybody's screaming about it, let's turn it off for a while. Let's see what happens across Canada. I know, at least central, not so much out in the east coast but if we turn off the taps and watch people scream let's see what happens to our country well i think that would hurt us too why don't well, we just so build it's the infrastructure hurt. it's gonna be a short-term hurt for a long-term gain correct mm, i don't know yeah 
Because we're also going to get, yeah, we can import. Oh, yeah, we don't want dirty oil from Alberta, but I'll bring in dictatorship oil from wherever. We still need oil. Until we have unicorn things happening and everything else, where are we getting this stuff from, Rob? Well, it's got to come from somewhere. Exactly. So where? U.S. is one. Well, U.S., where? They have enough trouble getting their stuff around. Okay. Well, that's so the biggest US, supplier right now the on the US East Coast. Still importing oil now from countries, and correct? they're exporting it to Canada. Not as much. The Balkan. No, the biggest, the biggest, much. the biggest foreign importer for Canada is the U.S. Yep. So, but again, the rest of our own country, our country. Let's turn off the Trans um, Canada pipeline. Let's watch Toronto screen for a while. Yeah, the East Coast might hurt. West Coast, turn off the Trans Mountain, and let's see what happens down there. Um, okay. I'd rather just build Trans Mountain and well, I, start I agree shipping. with you, Rob. I would love to see it. Okay. Trans Mountain 2 is great. So what makes you think it's not going to happen? Let's turn off it for a while and watch people scream is my point. It's a cold winter coming up here. Right? Yeah. Well, okay, but what about the people who do support it? Well, who cares now? Mr. Trudeau and Kader say, geez, we don't care about your dirty oil, your, but we just keep sending your, your dirty money to um, Ottawa. It's fine. That's all they care about is our dirty money, not our dirty oil. Okay. Dale, appreciate the phone call. 974-8255. Quick break here. Back with more right after this. Welcome back. Uh, what TransCanada actually said... Is interesting because they're not referring to anything specific, but they say after careful review of changed circumstances, we'll be informing the National Energy Board will no longer be proceeding with our Energy East and Eastern Mainline applications. TransCanada will also notify Quebec that is withdrawing the Energy East project from the environmental review process there. So that's really all they're saying about it today. I mean, where does that leave us now going forward? 974-8255 is our telephone number. Uh, this is Brad. Brad, good afternoon. Yes, how are you doing today? Really good, thanks. That's good to hear. I saw the University of Calgary did bitumen balls, and right, yeah. con- considering Energy East is uh, adding on new process, I just sort of, you know, the rails were part of why the Dominion of Canada was formed, and as a not a new project... You could be using, I think, a few other people as rail cars to move bitumen balls. You could back up semi-trailers and move it that way. It's not maybe the most environmentally friendly process compared to a pipe, but there isn't going to be any upset uh, First Nations or, uh, you know, many factors in that level. So, you know, it's disappointing that the pipe isn't going to be there, but I think, you know, it's something that we have to maybe spend more time researching as a society if where you can't put pipe places, right? Yeah, I, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. I, that's a good point, Brad. I appreciate the phone call. And you know, the idea of the, the bitumen balls where you can basically uh, reduce these into small ball-shaped, almost like plastic balls to, to transport and then convert them back. Uh, it's a really interesting uh, development. It could be a bit of a game changer. There's all kinds of reasons. I think we want to get it off of rails, free up that rail capacity for other things, uh, and and ship in pipelines, which is much safer. That would be ideal. But that's, you know, what we have to deal with now. Look, again, it's, it's not the government, say, to decide where pipelines need to go and where places should buy their oil from. 
if there's an economic case to be made for shipping it to the East Coast, then if company wants to build a pipeline, great. Now, if Energy East was going to be used for exports off of the East Coast, was going to go to refineries in the East Coast, whatever. I mean, I, I don't honestly care either way. If, if there's a case to be made for building it, then, then it should get built. But it, it just seems odd to me that we're going to get into this argument where it seems more like a protectionist argument, which in a weird way was kind of the argument they were making back in the early 80s. But it should be Canadian oil going to the rest of Canada. Right? So we should be wary of that kind of intervention. We'll export oil to where we think it needs to go, where there's demand for it. And certainly that's why we built pipelines to the United States. The idea of shipping to Asia is, is an interesting one, too. But it is somewhat hypocritical, I think, to say, no, we shouldn't buy oil from bad countries, but we can sell oil to bad countries. China, specifically, thinking of uh, shipping to, to Asia. So, yeah, it's, it would be preferable, I guess, if uh, Canadian oil were supplying refineries uh, on the East Coast. But I'm leery about the idea of the government mandating and dictating that it be the case. And certainly when it comes to any other commodity, we believe in open and free trade. We export, we import. That's what we should strive for. And so I don't want to see protectionism creep into this. Because on the left, you got those who want to ban exports, right? Value added, we got to keep it all at home. And on the right, you got those who want to ban imports. Uh, I'm not comfortable with either side of that, personally. Anyway, let's go back to the phones. This is uh, Reagan. Reagan, go ahead. Hi. I don't know if anybody touched on it before, but, you know, I think, you know, they're saying it for economic reasons they withdrew. Well, maybe we should apply, and I would hate this to happen because it would affect all of us, but if we're looking at upstream and downstream greenhouse gas effects, the aircraft industry is a perfect example of it's been shown, I believe, in a number of tests that um, the result of uh, flying puts the greenhouse gases higher into the atmosphere, more generally a more of a detrimental effect than, say, a car running at the surface. So if we applied that same logic to Bombardier, never mind the tax the U.S. government wants to put on their planes, we could also then be charging Bombardier a certain uh, surcharge for each aircraft for the damage it would be doing to the, uh, to the earth, conceivably, by the same logic, could we not? Um, yeah, potentially. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, I'm not sure what kind of process they would have to go through when they want to build something, but but it gets back to the idea that that the idea of carbon pricing is to to just address all of that without singling out certain sectors or industries to just say carbon is carbon. We're going to put a price on it, and that's how it's going to be. The, yeah. the, we don't we don't need this rule at the NEB either. Well, then that's that's just it. Or what about the next time Ford wants to build an auto plant down in Ontario somewhere? You know, would they? You know, the same rules would need to apply then because putting all those cars on the road potentially outside of the carbon pricing, um, which the NEB seems to be doing with this, it, uh, yeah, you just try and level the playing field for industries here. It, 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 the uncertainty that it brings in with this certainly doesn't help anybody, does it? Right. But it's an important point, and it, it seems to why it's an odd rule, because if you're talking about upstream emissions, uh, then you're talking about other ways of using that fuel. So why, why are you penalizing the transportation method, the pipeline, for the people driving their cars or for the airplanes that are being flown? If, if mm -hmm. they're creating emissions, that's not the pipeline's fault. Uh, so deal with those emissions. But you're right. I mean, the pipeline's being made out to be the boogeyman in all of this when, you know, it's the people driving cars and 
building airplanes and doing all this other stuff. I guess what the, the takeaway is, is people just need to be informed going into the next election about just, uh, you know, how how governments view development and, and what they think of it and job creation in certain segments of Canada, I guess, versus other segments of Canada. And hopefully we remember it in two years. Yeah, well, absolutely. We should. Yeah, we're going to appreciate the phone call. Let's get uh, Frederick's call in here. Hey, Frederick. Uh, Fred, is that me? That is. Yes, indeed. Sorry. No, Sorry. Uh, comment that Danielle had made on her show about, um, and first off, I'm not a separatist, don't want to see us do that. But um, the, the comment she made about Quebec has set themselves up with respect to collecting taxes. And she mentioned a couple of other areas that they have control over. Is it not time for us? Money is what talks. Are, we're still sending transfer payments to other provinces, Quebec being one mm, of them. No. Well, Ottawa does. Okay, you're okay, but through what I'm through Ottawa, that's what's happening, correct? Well, yeah. I mean, it's like any other project, right? Their program. The money for national defense comes out of general revenues. The money for equalization comes out of general revenues, right? It's it's a federally run program, and the money comes from. Uh, taxes. They collect taxes okay. here. They collect taxes in BC, Ontario, everywhere else, and it's the same tax yes. rate. I, yes, but yeah. I mean, it, is it not time for us to take control of that? Hang on to some of that money and use that then as our power chip. Well, how to... do we do that? I mean, Ottawa could lower taxes, and I guess Alberta could raise them, and that would have more money going to the Alberta government than the federal government. Is that what you mean? Well, no, but I'm trying to understand the comment, and, and this is going back to Danielle's show when she talked about Quebec has set themselves up where they collect all of their taxes. So do they collect the federal tax as well as their provincial taxes and then in turn send that into Ottawa? I believe so, but I'm not sure what what the advantage is there. We would then control that money, and as opposed to sending it to Ottawa, we would hang on to that and use that as as our bargaining chip. We're going to hold it hostage? Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah. Okay, that's an interesting approach. Well, money talks. It would be interesting to know the uh, the same uh, average family of four in Alberta and Quebec with someone attending university, uh, what the difference in, in, in that it costs because Quebec has free post-secondary education, do they not? Uh, I'm not sure about that. I'd, I'd have to double check that. Uh, well, I'm not okay, sure. yeah, Quebec that... de- definitely has generous social programs. I, th- I think we can concede that point. And yeah, sure, certainly there's a significant part of their budget that's federal transfers. I, I think we can we can establish that much. Frederick, appreciate the phone call. It's a, certainly an interesting idea. Four zero three nine seven four eight two five five. Back with uh, Dennis McConaughey, formerly of TransCanada. We'll get his thoughts in a few minutes. Stay with us. We believe it is clear that TransCanada is not proceeding with this application for the energy's pipeline because recent changes to world market conditions and the price of oil have negatively impacted the viability of the project. We believe that TransCanada continued with the process, the project would be approved. We still believe that. That's New Brunswick Premier Brian Gallant. And it raises an interesting question. TransCanada decided, you know what, it's, it's not worth it. But what if they had stuck with it and continued with the process? Would it have still been approved at the end? I guess we'll never know. Maybe it would have. 
All right, so what do we make of this decision today and uh, where this uh, whole debate goes from here? Well, Dennis McConaughey is uh, formerly with TransCanada, as a matter of fact, former uh, vice president of corporate development, previously was executive vice president on pipeline strategy and development. Uh, he's the author uh, of a book, came out earlier this year, called Dysfunction, Canada After Keystone XL. Dennis, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure. A lot of folks surprised by this announcement today. Uh, were you surprised? No, I was not. Certainly not after um, the press release that TransCanada had made roughly 30 days ago, where it indicated that it was suspending the project and attributing that to the various um, regulatory burdens that had been incrementally added on them by this NEB panel and basically sanctioned by the Trudeau government. And most notable amongst those was this decision to uh, burden approval of this pipeline uh, by considering what were known as upstream carbon emission effects. Mm-hmm. This is really blaming the pipeline for the incremental carbon emissions that arise from the production of Canadian oil sands that would be moved through the pipeline. And the whole specter of where that would have taken this hearing, um, I think, was very much like the last straw for TransCanada. Well, and there's probably a lot of factors here, I suspect. I mean, it's certainly we, we are hearing those who want to criticize the government, say, look, they, they changed these rules, uh, and, and that didn't help anything. And you have the government saying that this is also a business decision. There are market factors at, at play here. I, I suppose there, there's probably some truth in, in both sides of that, then. So, to be fair, it is obvious that with the hopeful probability next year that Keystone XL... Trans Mountain Expansion and Enbridge Line 3 are all actually being constructed, um, that the incremental capacity that those three projects represent relative to what would be expected incremental oil sands supply growth over the next decade, you could make the argument that the timing of Energy East would be likely, if needed, well into the next decade. And so there is a legitimate point to be made about when would this pipeline have been needed had it been approved. Now, all that's to be acknowledged, and and that is an issue. Now, what is also a reality, and I think a bigger one in this case, is that TransCanada this morning indicated that it's going to uh, write off a billion dollars, and they haven't even gotten to the hearing stage. And a lot of that had to do with the process that they were subjected to by the NEB, the various um, demands um, on TransCanada in terms of meeting its standards for complete application, the removal of a first panel and its replacement by a second one, mm-hmm. the second one deciding to start over, and then most notoriously to rescope the frame of reference of the hearing. All of those made the cost of, of pursuing this permit, um, I think, just um, too much for TransCanada. Even if we concede that the necessity of this pipeline was obviously impacted by the fact that those other three pipes may be installed within the next uh, two years in Canada. Right. And that's, it's important to consider that side of it, too. You, I, I think you're right. but I acknowledge that. Yeah. I acknowledge that. Uh, the, the point about how, how the rules seem to change in the middle of the game, and, and you can understand TransCanada's frustration, I, I get that we need a, a robust, a rigorous process that people can have faith in when it comes to, to approving these projects and, and to you know, send a message to Canadians that we are taking environmental concerns seriously. But the, these rules around uh, upstream emissions and including that in the the assessment, does does that make sense for Energy East or any other future pipeline project? 
What makes sense, Rob, is that the Canadian government, I understand the score of the Canadian government, clarify for Canadians whether incremental oil production and the emissions they generate are consistent with Canadian carbon policy or not. Does paying a carbon tax let you emit carbon, and does it let you uh, expand oil sands production? That should have been an issue resolved by the Canadian government, not by a regulator. And as you just pointed out, the, the, the fundamental function of the Canadian regulatory system is to ensure that pipelines and other major energy infrastructure is constructed and operated safely, consistent with global standards on uh, risk mediation, uh, engineering quality, and um, uh, ultimate uh, uh, dealing with abandonment issues, etc., we have to get back to where regulators are actually doing what their core purpose is, is to ensure the Canadian public that projects are going to be engineered and operated safely and that the basic political questions and upstream carbon emissions and whether they're on-site or off-site with Canadian carbon policy should have been taken on by the Trudeau government and not have it part of a regulatory procedure. And that's what was so fundamentally intolerable about that decision. And it, created more uncertainty, more risk, so that private capital is simply not going to use a regulatory system that is this protracted, this costly, and this risky. But I think you raise an interesting point. I mean, the whole the whole purpose of pricing carbon is to address the emissions side of it uh, and, exactly. and to let the market figure it out. If, if we're doing so already through through pricing of carbon, which this government intends to bring in, then why do we need to, to include this in the NEB process? Precisely. Now, that clarification should have been done by Jim Carr, uh, Catherine McKenna, Jerry Butts, or Justin Trudeau. I mean, it ought not to have been deferred to the NEB. And that's what was such an egregious you know, error of regulatory process here. And yet we all know that there's a constituency in this country of environmental groups and other elements on the Canadian left that would use the regulatory process to frustrate uh, any hydrocarbon development through stifling its required infrastructure. So very much, just to your, your point, Rob, if we're pricing carbon, what's the issue? And if that's not enough of a sufficient condition, then the government better tell Canadians and tell mm-hmm. them quickly. And they have not done that. Well, that's an important point. What um, they've done is, is, is ratified Paris, committing us to apparent targets that are implausible and very hard to meet. Yeah. In the meantime, as you say, I mean, should Trans Mountain, the, the expansion, uh, go ahead and should Keystone XL go ahead? That, that will certainly provide needed capacity in the short term. But do you remain optimistic that, that these projects will get built? Yes, I am. I am fundamentally optimistic because the, the basic uh, business case for those projects is compelling. Now, keep in mind, Energy East suffered from the fact that, you know, these other projects were ahead of it and that... Um, Energy East clearly was impacted by the revival of Keystone XL. Now, neither Keystone XL or Trans Mountain or even Enbridge Line 3 are certainties today. So it was always very much in the Canadian interest that Trans Canada was persevering with pursuit of Energy East because it was another option. And that's why the decision to rescope was so um, unfortunate because I think it became the last straw on the camel's back. But, uh, yes, I remain fundamentally confident that all three of those projects will be under construction next year. 
Can you envision at some point in the future, though, uh, a pipeline? Maybe it's it's a different company, a, a different route, et, et cetera. But the the idea of a pipeline to the East Coast, do you think that that still could be on the table in the years ahead? Well, I mean, obviously, if for some reason those three pipes I just cited didn't occur, there would be, I think, considerable discussion about uh, a revival of Energy East. That would be a terrible outcome for the country, but it's always possible. Mm-hmm. My own view would be the following, that uh, at this point, if Canada is able to install those three pipes over the next two years, I think the revival of an Energy East project will be, you know, um, it'll be some time before we see that happen, especially if the Canadian regulatory process is not made considerably less dysfunctional than it is today. Well, some great insight, Dennis. Uh, really appreciate you making some time for us here today. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. There you go. That's Dennis McConaughey, former executive vice president at TransCanada Corporation, which is the company, of course, behind Keystone XL and the now-defunct Energy East. Dennis also the author of the book uh, Dysfunction, Canada After Keystone XL. And he's right. I mean, a dysfunctional process isn't serving anybody. So let's get that straightened out. But if these other pipeline projects go ahead, does it weaken the case for this additional pipeline, at least in the short term? It probably does. And I think that's kind of an undeniable fact in all of this. There's a quote here as well today from uh, Alberta Core Capital uh, Incorporated analyst Dirk Lieber. says, I don't think anybody in Calgary thought Energy East was actually going to go ahead. It was plan B. says there was more optimism around Keystone XL. And producers would be reluctant to commit to both projects he says, especially given shrinking growth prospects in the oil sands. So how do we address that? All right, that's a whole other question. Be interesting to see, by the way, there's a lot going on, or at least a lot potentially going on. If the U.S. moves to kill the Iran deal and slaps new sanctions on Iran and prevents a whole lot of Iranian oil from going onto the global market, uh, you know, stuff like that could cause a real spike in prices. And I guess by extension, that might be of benefit to us. So all these things, you know, there's a lot of wild cards out there going forward that could have a big impact on Alberta. So I'm trying to look at it to a glass half full. As, and, and Dennis says he's optimistic. And I, I guess if people like Dennis are optimistic, maybe that, that confirms my desire to be optimistic. There have been two projects that Justin Trudeau has had to say yes to. Uh, the Trans Mountain Project and the Line 3 Replacement Project. And he said yes to both. That's a big step. Obviously, they're not built yet. We'll see if that happens. I believe construction is underway on the Line 3 Replacement. Construction set to begin uh, this fall on uh, the Trans Mountain Project. And then, of course, we've got uh, Keystone XL, which Canada approved long ago and now just has uh, approval in the U.S. I'm not sure exactly where things are at in the U.S., but uh, there is a lot of optimism that that could finally go ahead. So that's a positive, isn't it? We're talking about pipeline capacity. Those projects going ahead, that's what we need, certainly in the short term. Now, if they don't, we got a big problem on our hands. But I think to put it all in perspective and looking at where we would be at here in 2017... That's not bad. Look, I'm still very disappointed about Northern Gateway. I think Northern Gateway made a lot of sense, uh, and I think it was political that Justin Trudeau killed that project. Okay, well, Trans Mountain to the West Coast, that's a positive. Keystone XL to the South, that's a positive. 
So I think we need to know where those things are at before we decide um, how bleak things are. If those don't go ahead, yeah, we got a big problem. But it seems to me, I think a lot of people are jumping the gun and assuming that those aren't going to happen and then planning a retaliation. So that, again, to me, seems to be jumping the gun a little bit. 403-974-8255 is a number. We are back with more right after this. We'll get some confirmation uh, regarding one of these projects. Got a text that says, Rob, Line 3 is under construction right now. I'm working on it. Well, that's good to hear. Let's get more of that. 403-974-8255. Grant, welcome to the program. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me on. I, I had to get off the line last time, so I apologize about that. Anyways, Rob, like, I don't know a lot about the insides and outsides of this, but I've been in Alberta since 1978. And, you know, you live and you die by the sword. You live and you die by the oil. The same type it goes for us out here. But, you know, it seems like for years, even going back to when I moved back here in the late 70s and things, they, everybody's always taken advantage of us. Like when we were in our heyday, how much were we sending to Quebec and to other, you know, the, the have-not provinces and this and that? Like, like I just wish somebody would just come up with a figure, like something to back and say, look how much we've helped you out. And now you want to step on our throats. I mean, and are we still doing that with our oil? Is it a law that we have to do that? Why don't we stop doing that? Stop sending them money and things. And back in Quebec, they got the big hydro pro- uh, project. I don't, know, I don't know what it's called. But do we get anything from that? If, if energy's coming out of Canada and they want us to share with everybody, we should share in that as well. And this whole thing about, uh, about a pipeline compared to, geez, wasn't it in Quebec where they had that unfortunate, terrible accident with a train that blew up in the middle of a downtown? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, wasn't it, like, I mean, foreign oil coming in? And isn't it true that pipelines actually go underneath the St. Lawrence River to bring oil in from the States? Like, how much of an environmental hazard would that be if something happened there? You know, yeah. there's just so many things that we, I just wish that we would get together and like lay on the, on the mat to these guys. And if there is something we're sending it, sending them, cut it off right now. Okay, Grant, appreciate the phone call. Um, you know, certainly there are those who have quantified the net contribution of the years. The last to do so, there was a Fraser Institute uh, study earlier this year that put a number on it. It was a considerable number. And I, I think we all know that, right? Uh, and Alberta's never been a have-not province, and, and really I can't even imagine a circumstance under which we would be. Alberta gets money, various uh, other social transfers, but again, it's it's that net contribution. How much federal tax is collected in Alberta? How much federal transfers come back to Alberta? You can ask, you can quantify that for Alberta, you can quantify it for every province, and it adds up to a lot. A lot that we've contributed and a lot that other provinces have received. No doubt about it. And sure, yeah, we, we point to all kinds of hypocrisy that abounds with these uh, Quebec politicians like Denis Coderre, the threat posed by rail, which they seem oblivious to, uh, the fact that there are pipelines running under the St. Lawrence Seaway, ships going through the St. Lawrence Seaway, bringing oil to Quebec, to refineries in Quebec, so it can be burned in Quebec. Right? Th- this is all obvious. It should be obvious. <laughs> Uh, to everybody. Why it's not to, to them, I don't know. I think the point I'm trying to get across here is that I don't know that we're losing yet. Feels like we've lost a lot of the last couple of years. 
But if you want to go back a bit further, we got the original Keystone built. We got the Alberta Clipper built. We've got Keystone XL now approved. We've got Trans Mountain now approved. We've got the Line 3 replacement now approved. Those are wins. Doesn't mean it's over. Doesn't mean these are built. Doesn't mean we can rest on our laurels. Quite the opposite. But that's the broader context here. That I don't think pipeline opponents are winning. They might be feeling as though they've won something today. Maybe they do have reason to gloat. It's a big decision. There are a lot of other decisions that haven't gone their way. And I think when you've got this kind of broad coalition almost, where you've got politicians on the right and left in favor of building more capacity, in favor of projects like Trans Mountain. I mean, you've got the conservatives, provincially, federally, support Trans Mountain. NDP, provincially, support Trans Mountain. Federal liberals support Trans Mountain. That's something. Anyway, 403-974-8255. Back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.